The next thing we plan to do in teaching and preaching over the next uh, couple months, really, is um, to follow a study that John Ortberg laid out in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. And uh, not to, like, read it word for word, not even to, if you don't read it, whatever, right? Like, it's, uh, we're going to be studying the Word of God. If you have the Word of God with you this morning or a way to get there, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 5 through verse 15. We're going to use the New Living Translation this morning and just kind of get going in this. But uh, I really want to commend that book to you, not as a perfect book, um, but but it's a good one, right? Like, in some of you, you haven't read a book since high school, so it might be a good one to start with. I know that uh, I read this one, I think I was in high school. I know as a teenager, um, for sure, it, was, it came out in 1997 by this pastor named John Ortberg, and uh, it just hit at the right time. I grew up in the church, whenever the church doors were open, right, like the Sayer family was there, but it just hit in all the right spots to remind me that to be a good Christian does not mean that I'm good at covering up my sins. It means that God is good at changing me, and I'm going to let him do that. Like, it's his will that he would make us pure and holy. Like, it's, it's our will that gets in the way. And so I I want to encourage you, again, not as a perfect book, but as a good book. And you can pick up almost anywhere, any of our small groups, not all of them. We'll be kind of reading along. There's discussion questions with each chapter, and it'll kind of change topics as we go along. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I know it's, yeah, some of you are like, oh, it's a book, you know. But it's a message from an author, a real person who's even still alive today and who could bless you. I mean, to be able to sit down with, a, with an amazing person is, is what you get to do when you read a book. I know all of you readers know this, but some of you, you don't know it, but like the, except for the people you meet and the books you read, you're going to stay the same person generally, except for God. God has to come down and do something powerful is really, really what happens in the spiritual life when that, when that needs to come about. So, um, so yeah, we'll kind of be following along. I, I know that there's a number of people out there who accuse pastors of just looking up their sermons online and then like memorizing them or reading a manuscript and just delivering them. But as long as I'm the pastor of Fort Lauderdale uh, Presbyterian Church, I will not do that. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. This is a pastor writing to some people, writing to some people he's not near, a letter. Some people in a place called Colossae, um, we get a sense that uh, some people in Laodicea are probably reading this too. They're right next door to each other, and in the book of Revelation, you find out more about the Laodiceans. So starting at verse 5, for although I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. This is the only spot, really, that this translation isn't the best, but overall, over the next uh, 10 verses that we read it, I I think it can be. There's two things he says here. I I really delight in you guys living orderly 
end in your faith being strong. So living as you should, the New Living Translation, I mean, it's kind of this sense, this word orderly is what the military would use. This is our standing code of conduct. And so, yes, living as you should is a faithful translation of that. But I want you to hear that he calls out those two things when he's complimenting this church. Verse 6, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature not, was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ before he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way he disarmed he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So here Paul is talking to a church that he knows, and he does not call out to them, oh man, I love what you guys have done with your music at that church. Mm, I'm just hearing such good things. I really love hearing that you have, to, you have to have two meeting times now rather than one. He doesn't call out and say, man, I heard about the new carpet. Mm, good choice in that church. Right? Like None of this would have made sense in their time period, but there's so many things that he could have said in verse 5 that he was thankful to hear about them in, in their life, in their life together. But he calls out a couple words. He calls out the fact that they are orderly and firm. He compliments them both as an organism and as an organization. He says, you're, you're both a building and you're growing roots. These are things he uses in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a double metaphor that, that's all throughout there. He says, you know, one is not complete. To just say that the church, that we grow together and we need to be organized, there needs to be a blueprint, we need to be built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, we need to be built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He says, that's not enough. We grow together. I don't know many buildings that can weather a storm the way that organisms can, the way that the trees do, the way that they can swing in the breeze. I, I don't know of many buildings that roots keep growing. Once that foundation's set, you can't do anything more. You don't nourish from where you're at, but here's Paul's compliment to them. And he calls out and he says, look how good this is. He talks about stuff that we don't talk about when we would maybe want to invite somebody into the fellowship of the redeemed, into the fellowship of faith. And we say, oh, you know what? You might like the music. At least our chairs are soft, right? 
We don't have stairs in our church. I mean, like, why does that stuff matter? Instead, he says they're orderly. They're like soldiers who get in line. Like a building who you don't go, why did they build it like that? Like an organism that can stand up to the, to the storm. And, and many people would like to compliment one thing about their church, but not another. Or many people in this church would like to say, oh man, I love how, how messy we are, how unaffiliated, how loose we can be. I, I don't know of many people in our church who would say this, but maybe, like, look how many committees we have. We have so many rules. Isn't this great? And maybe you're drawn to one more than the other, right? Maybe you say, yeah, yeah, we need that. You, you work in a... In, in a place where there's a culture, right? A culture where maybe they're like, there's so many rules, and you're like, oh, I can't breathe in this place. Or others of you work at a place where you're like, I wish there were some rules. Like, everybody just does whatever they want. Not so should it be in the church, right? You can have so much organization, but not enough organism. But the thing is, all of that, our call is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to reach broken people. We have Satan to fight, and we can't be arguing about what time to have church service. We're not. But let's say in a few weeks, we can't all fit in one service. Are we going to argue that we can't? I mean, think about an army that would argue about mealtime changing. Or like, we used to have our meetings at this time. We can't go fight the battle. I mean, how silly would that be? Yet churches will fight about stuff that's temporary. What matters is, is our faith firm. Do we have the things that, that God would complement? Now, it's, it's important to think organizationally and organically, but the task that God has called his people to is impossible with just those two things. We have to be a supernatural organization. It doesn't mean we can't be organized. It doesn't mean we can't be flexible. But dead people need to come to life. And I don't know of a flow chart that will fix that. Right? Like, you know, Rick Warren's got a great plan. And, and if you listen to him, it really is to rely on God. Does it get walked out in some organization? Great. Do some other people in house churches and the flexibility that those offer, that's, that's wonderful, but none of those can raise the dead. What we need is something different. We need Holy Spirit power. He's the one who raises the dead. We cannot. And so he rejoices, Paul does it, we're living as we should. The church in Colossae. Would he say the same thing about us? So then verse 6 says, And now just as you accepted Christ as the Lord, you must continue to follow him. Just as you accepted him. To, to turn to Christ, you know, a lot of people have, have kind of pigeonholed into, did you say a prayer at one point? Did you ever say something like, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, amen? Like something short and sweet. It doesn't have to be long. It could have been your own words. It's interesting where some of that comes from. You know, in, in 1949, there was a group, um, they were, they're mostly focused on young people in Los Angeles who wanted to hold a revival. 
which is hilarious when you think about it because we can't raise the dead. But they were planning. They were praying, God, would you move in a powerful way? And they invited some no-name preacher to come to Los Angeles and speak to the youth there. And to promote it, they thought they would get on the radio. Well, there was a guy who was on the radio named Stuart Hamblin. You probably don't get this reference. I don't know if he was like the Joe Rogan of his day, but he was, he was kind of a cool guy. He was in the Westerns with John Wayne. He would sing himself some country Western stuff, and he had a radio program. And so they wanted to get on this radio program the people running the revival. And so they met with this guy, and, and he thought, Stuart Hamblin did, I ought to go and see what's what's going on with these people. They, they put up a tent, and they're going to start doing something. Well, Stuart Hamblin goes and just can't believe what he sees. He ends up finding the evangelist, the guy who is preaching at the end of it. And the guy who's preaching said, we've been praying for you for weeks, for weeks. And he just broke down and surrendered his life to Jesus, right there and then. Well, Stuart Hamblin was a guy who was known for, well, you look at some of his early songs, he was known for, for drinking and, and women, as they would have said back then. His promoters would often get him out of the trouble that he was in because he was just such a crazy guy. Well, then he goes back to his nine to five. He goes back to his job and he starts realizing that he's promoting alcohol on the air and he says, I'm not doing that. Well, you don't have commercials, you don't have a radio show, so they fired him shortly after his conversion. He lost what he had been working toward, but he had gained so much. Later, he was talking to John Wayne. This is what he says. He was talking to John Wayne. John Wayne said, do you miss the drinks? Nope, don't miss them at all. He said, do you miss the women? Nope, not at all. Was it worth it? He said, yep. John Wayne said, I don't get that. And, and Stuart Hamblin said to him, it is no secret what God can do. And John Wayne said, that sounds like a song. And sure enough, churches all over the country have sung, we, not lately, sing a song, it is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. He ended up, you know, he lost his radio program. You can see him, Johnny Cash had him. I saw it on YouTube if you want to see Stuart Hamblin sing. Um, did Johnny Cash have a show for a while? I don't know. Like, my references are getting pretty old. I realize I said I was a teenager in the 90s and some of you weren't alive in the 90s. I'm at this weird point in life where there's older and younger than me. It's, it's, it's really interesting, but... Uh, if you want to see original singing of this, it's kind of interesting. Later, Stuart Hamblin would finish fourth in a field of 12 um, candidates for president in 1952. He lost to Eisenhower. What a loser. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was only on the ballot in 21 states, and he, you know, he continued to serve the Lord. He, he continued not just to pray the prayer, but to put down roots. You can become a Christian in a moment, but you can't become a mature Christian in a moment. You can be fully filled, but Christ, so he will enter and forgive you, but your, your character is going to be shaped and transformed to his will over time. 
You know, you can get married in a few minutes, like just, just quick. But for you guys to come together is going to take years. For two strong wills to be united as one, it's going to be a lifetime of adjustment. But it's got to be a deliberate act. If you're going to call him Lord, it's got to be a deliberate, a deliberate act. He wants it all. Heart, soul, mind, strength. He wants to overwhelm you. Christ came not just to save your spiritual aspect of your personality. All of you, every cell in your body, should belong under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when it does, we overflow. Your faith will grow strong and you overflow with thankfulness. Just, it just gushes. I find myself distracted in prayer. Can you relate? Just thinking about random stuff. Not bad, not good, sometimes just random, right? Sometimes bad, sometimes good. And I've, just a couple weeks ago, God gave me a word to kind of get myself back on track. It's thanks. Thanks, God, for that person. Thank you for that thing. Thank you for that car. It needs fixed. My mind's going there. Thank you that I even have a car to worry about. Thank you, God, for that person who I love so much that, yeah, they're, they're, they're in my family, but thank you. I wish they weren't in my family. No, but like, thank you, God. <laughs> Overflowing with thankfulness. I, I would encourage you to try that, to, not as a mind trick, but as a, like, that should come from the center. So then there's some warnings from Paul to the church. Don't let anybody capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking. You know, you can have a full head and an empty heart. There's been times, I, I admit, I've come to this pulpit more studied up here than a fire in here. And you know the difference, and I do too. And you've met believers who know way more Bible than you but they're cold, and you know it, because there's a difference. There's a deadness, and there's life. There's darkness, and there's light. And then there are folks with you know, dead brains and bankrupt souls who maybe are just, they're disillusioned with the church and its pseudo-transformation, as John Ortberg calls it, where we're informed but not transformed. We have, we have come up with boundary marker spirituality, another thing that he uses in the book, these highly visible but mostly superficial practices. You keep reading in Colossians later than we do, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, circumcision, these outward things. Traditions, sometimes we call them, but traditions are not all bad, are they? There's, there's a quote by um, Jaroslav Pelikan who says, Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. Okay, so we can learn from our past. We can, we can feast on the legacy of godliness and the principles of relying upon God in the past. But traditionalism that celebrates that we have to only do it that way. It's the dead faith of the living. You have to have a real experience with God. You do. It's not good enough that your parents are saved. It's not good enough that your spouse is saved. 
It's, it's, it's not a transferable thing. In, in the sense that like it just rubs off on you because you, you live at the same address. One of the traditions, it's interesting in the church, we look back and we say, we look back and sometimes the glory days of the past, we look back at, at how things used to be done in soul saving and we think, wow, that wish you could have something like that. You know that revival that I was talking about in 1949 that Stuart Hamblin came to Christ at? It was only supposed to last three weeks. It lasted eight and reached 350,000 people. At least 350,000 were, were counted. And that no-name preacher got a boost from Stuart Hamlin while he still was in that place that God had him. He put out to the media outlets, hey, you should hear what's going on in Los Angeles. There's this guy named Billy Graham. Nobody's ever heard of him, but fire's here. You know, Billy Graham preached in his lifetime in front of 210 million people is the estimate. That's a lot of decades of preaching. I was able to see him in Cincinnati in 2002. I think I've mentioned it before. He came there. He's pretty old at that point. He sat on a stool and he told us the story of the prodigal son. And he did it with his southern twang. And it did not sound, how does the scripture say, high sounding? But it sure wasn't nonsense. It was simple truth this guy was spitting it was wonderful and a lot of people want to think like who's the next billy graham like can we find that person you know i did some math so 210 million people in his lifetime billy graham reached there's over 7 billion coming close to 8 billion people on planet earth let's go back to math class like billions a lot bigger than a million if, there was, there was, well, let me tell you this. One time, Billy Graham preached in front of an estimated crowd in Korea, South Korea, of one million people. The pictures are unbelievable. This outdoor, obviously, sea of people. A million people. The math is, if you could do that every single day of the year, and a million more people would believe in Jesus, not just come, but become Christians. And you could do that every single day of the year. It would take 22 years to reach the people on planet Earth. Every day, a million people get saved in one place or from one preacher or one outlet. You don't even reach a billion till. Close to three years, 22 years it would take. So tradition, we want to find, well, who's the next Billy Graham? Here's some other math for you. If we only had a thousand believers on planet earth right now, and each of those believers would reach two people for Jesus a year, one every six months, and those people would reach somebody. For Jesus, two people for somebody in the next year. Every six months, that every Christian would make another Christian. You know, being a disciple actually means being a disciple maker too. So this isn't just what if, right? If you run that scenario, it takes half the time. If a million people would get saved a day in one place through one outlet through one person, it'd take 11 and a half years. And 
I'm pretty sure we're starting with more than a thousand. You know that first strategy of, like, let's get a professional or a few professionals to reach the loss? It's stupid. And it's many of our decisions to allocate sharing the good news to professionals who can stand up in front of people and tell a few stories and get them to smile and then maybe get a trickle of people every year to believe in Jesus versus what Jesus seemed to tell us to do is go and make disciples of all the nations. And here's the beautiful thing. We can do both, you know. But we can't just do the one and just expect to like, can I ju- who do I write a check to? You know, Pastor, we have YouTube now. Wouldn't that be a great way to reach people with Jesus? If it's not sinning, sure, let's do it. But it's a stupid idea to only rely upon that. You don't disciple people that way. And in fact, sometimes, you know, Billy Graham being somebody who I appreciate and, and, and just like, just really, ha- I'm going to be excited to meet the guy in heaven someday, I hope. But the fact that, like, people could just come forward, pray a prayer, maybe get a three-by-five card and leave and think they're going to heaven, undersold the good news of the gospel, that we can live lives that are firmly rooted in Christ so that when storms come, not if they come, we'll be okay. And even if we're not okay here on this earth, we still have a spiritual home in the heavens. We have to rethink some of these thoughts that we have about what it means to be a church. Jesus said, I'm not the only one who stomps at religious people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, he says, you're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and the flowers bright, but six feet down it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. People you... Here's what he says to the religious. If you're visiting today, I'm really glad you're here. But to the religious, here's what Jesus says. People look at you and think you're saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. Some people who attend this church are total frauds, phonies. They are. No intention to change. Just want to learn how to cover up your sins better. That's the emptiness of the world. Christ comes to fill people. We we are also to be complete through union with Christ. He's addressing some of the physical uh, attributes that Christ actually appeared in a body. He's dealing with some issues of Gnosticism that are coming along that way through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Like God really did show up in the flesh and he really wants to show up in our bodies. That we would... Be like a glove who actually has a hand, not just dead and laying there, but we would be filled from the inside out. We'd be transformed, not just conformed to the pattern of this world. Not just living out tradition, but seeking a savior. Verse 11 and 12 treats the um, issue of, I can hear it now in my voice changing, circumcision. It changes, it's, it's some good wording here because this is a practice that the Jews had had practiced for a long time. We've settled this doesn't matter anymore. Here's what Paul says. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a, a physical procedure. 
Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So he's saying, you know, what used to be the initiation ritual, now we baptize. And it represents a death, it represents a burial, it represents a resurrection. I hope you've heard us use these words around this as, as, as I've been the pastor here to talk about dying to the old and coming to life in the new. Some of you are like, my baptism was so long ago. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got any water in your ears left over from baptism. You're not saved by that anyway. You were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God, and he's still around. He raised Christ from the dead. Paul says later to the Galatian church, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's died to trying to please people. And that's a lot of where we live. We think Christianity means I'm a people pleaser. That everybody's going to like me. How's that working for you? We have one person to please. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 points out three cravings that we try to fill and the world can't do it. Do not love this world. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world's fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. That sounds good to me. That we would put aside the, the pursuit of power and money and sex because that stuff passes away. It's just, it's just cravings. And we, we maybe satiate our, our physical cravings with, with food or some sort of enjoyment or sex, and, but it doesn't last. Or, or, or with, with the pursuit of power influence or or the pursuit of possessions that are going to rust and moths are going to eat and destroy is the world crucified to me and i to the world that's a double crucifixion if you're keeping track chew on that one for a little bit that'll get stuck in your craw i mean that anybody got a spot where pork chops get stuck Chew on Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 for a week. Man, not only the world's crucified to me, but I'm, I'm like a corpse to the world. What are they going to do with a corpse? They don't know what to do with a corpse. Chew on that. You were dead. Then God made you alive with Christ. What a, what a lead in to communion. What a lead in to the Lord's Supper today. Listen to this. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. Like some of you have saved that, that bill that gets paid off, that last one, final notice, you're done paying this debt. 
He took and canceled the record of the charges against us. He nailed it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You know, when he cried, it is finished on the cross, it is not resignation. If you didn't know that that's one of his last cries from the cross, it is finished. You know it now. And that, I think it's tetelestai, if I remember the original language there. It was something that people in the Olympics would shout at the finish line. It's something you're going to see in the, you know, in the Olympics when a cross-country skier is going, and they do that last push, and ah, because they've won because they've completed the task. They've done what they were, they were planning to do. Some of you have consecrated your life to Christ, but you haven't done it lately. And you think like, well, once and for all should be good, right? Yeah. And this isn't perfectly polished, but I was thinking about the house I grew up in. I had uh, two older brothers, so there are three boys in this house, and we had a dining room, and in the corner of it was a china cabinet. Anybody have a china cabinet or grew up? Like, so you take all the precious, fragile stuff that you never use, and you put it in a glass um, thing to keep it safe. Kind of dumb. Um, and my mom would constantly have to say, watch the china cabinet. Like she, like, she had consecrated it when we were young. Do not touch this, I will kill you. Sorry, Mom, but you, were, you, were, you wanted to protect the china cabinet. But she had to keep doing it. She had to keep doing it and say, this, this is special, this is sacred. I'm like, well, why don't you, I remember, like, put it in a closet if it's so special. Or, and then the argument of, like, well, we should use it once in a while. But that doesn't further the point here of consecration. That's just anti, uh, you know, fine China talk. Um, so she had to keep saying, no, this is special. This is holy. This is special. This is holy. You know, we have to daily die, um, daily take up our cross and follow him, even to say, this is special. Like, what? God has put inside me. Why would I unite that with some of the stuff that I have been uniting it with? If God lives inside, why would I grieve the Holy Spirit? Friends, today's a good day. A good day to consecrate. A good day to say, Christ, your work on the cross is enough. Today is a wonderful day because we can face the junk of our past and our present with confidence because he has taken care of it. You might not think you have the guts to, and you probably don't. You need grace, not guts. You need grace. So let's pray for grace. Let's step into a moment that uh, the church has traditionally used for grace, and it's instituted by Christ himself, so it's a good one.